Welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. Now, Cam, we have a special guest this week. We've picked her out in the airport. Uh, She doesn't know it yet, but it's Lorraine from Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast. Welcome aboard, Lorraine. Hello. Hey, welcome to the show. I have my shoe on. <laughs> uh, we won't tell everyone what color it is yet, just in case we give away the title of the uh, of the movie. Now, Lorraine, this is the first time you've been on our show. We've also appeared on your show in the past. But for our listeners, tell us a little bit about Once Upon a Nightmare. Uh, yeah, it's a true crime and horror movie podcast that I do solo, where I just discuss true crime and horror. Because it's my favorite thing ever. Now, what would you say are some of your favorite horror films or ones that listeners might hear a little bit more about if they pop over to that podcast? Well, I'm not into my gore. I like more psychological. So things like Science of the Lambs. Um, I love Aliens, Shining, Blade, stuff like that. I don't really go for, you know, things like Hostel or, um, you know... I can't think of any other gory ones off the top of my head, but I'm not big into that. I like the kind of more ones that less is more type thing. Right. Horror is such an interesting genre in that there's so many subgenres of horror. Mm. Uh, you know, you say torture porn is not your thing. I mean, no. totally get it. I'm not a big fan of that either. Seen the odd one I thought was all right, but by and large, uh, I'm with you. But yeah, there's so many different avenues to go with horror. And especially, I mean, nowadays we're in this whole weird era of, We've got a lot of art house horror, but then also stuff like the Conjuring Universe stuff. Mm. So there's a lot to play with. Yeah, I love all the paranormal stuff as well. I love Rob Zombie, um, old Halloween. I love 80s horror films, um, but I've kind of find it quite difficult to find one like later on, like in 2010, 20, you know, that type of era, the noughties, that's what they call it. Um, Apart from Us, I really enjoyed, but in general, I find it quite difficult to find one that I really liked. You say you're a fan of 80s horror. Were you a fan of like the revival of Halloween that they did a couple years ago? I liked um, the 2018 one that they mm-hmm. did. Um, I think I may prefer that to the original. Mm, interesting. But I do like the original and I liked Halloween 2. Um, but I'm more of a Kruger fan than a My- Myers fan. But I do love Michael Myers. Well, love him as much as you can do. <laughs> That's fascinating because I am of the horror icons. Freddy Krueger is not one of my favorites. I, he, I'm, he's kind of near the bottom for me. I'm more of it's a not Jason, Michael Myers. Is it? Okay. Uh, uh, no, no. Like uh, Jason's a little further down. I find Mike mm. Myers probably my favorite. Leatherface is kind of cool too. But mm. uh, I'm, I'm curious, Scott, who's your favorite horror icon? <laughs> <laughs> you literally, you're both throwing out these names. I haven't actually got a clue. You who know who Freddy really Krueger is. Freddy Krueger? I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you what he looks like. Wow. You don't want to know. I know the name. <laughs> yeah, not even, not even joking. Yeah, I, I just don't. I, I know the name. Like, I've heard it on in things, but I, I can't say I could tell you what film franchise is attached to or anything like that. Spoiler for the audience. Scott actually lives in a bunker, and this podcast is his reintroduction to the world around him. Have you heard of A Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> I've heard of it. Yeah, that's Kruger. I still don't know what he looks like. <laughs> wow. A really cool jumper. Nope. Well... <laughs> Scott should be listening to the Once Upon a Nightmare podcast to oh, find out a little bit more about this genre for sure. As well it's as right I think up his alley. <laughs> I've listened to the show and it's good for newbies or people that are just horror fans in general, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. 
People that have listened to the episode that we guest starred on uh, where we covered the movie Wreck will know I don't do well with horror films. But um, you figured out but, what happens yeah. before we did. Remember at the end, you figured out how it went. True. I guess I guess I just sort of figured out the logical conclusion. But I was, <laughs> to be fair, I figured that out whilst hiding behind a bunch of pillows. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, okay. Well, you're, you're aboard the spy movie podcast now. So I'll throw the quick questions at you. What's your favorite spy movie of all time? Um, I tend to like the comedy ones. So like Austin Powers, Spies Like Us. Um, I did like Mission Impossible, the first two. But I was having a bit of a think about this. And I actually remember when I was a kid, I used to love things like Bionic Woman, Six Million Dollar Man, uh, The Avengers with Patrick McNee, um, the Mission Impossible show, TV film, and of course, things like 24 and Homeland. So I kind of like the older stuff TV wise and more, I think, well, I suppose Spies Like This was 80s, but um, Austin Powers and stuff. I like those. I'm not really into dare I say it, James Bond and stuff like that. I used to be. Sure. Or even like maybe the more serious stuff like uh, Tinker yeah. Tailor Soldier Spy. Oh, I couldn't get on board with that at all. Yeah. And I heard it was a great film. So what you're saying is you really want to come and discuss uh, the Rafe Fiennes uh, 1990s uh, Avengers film, right? <laughs> okay. But do you know what I think you guys <laughs> yeah. should do? I was thinking of say Miss Congeniality. <laughs> Is it a spy movie? Well, like, she kind of uh, goes undercover and she's a secret agent, you know, and stuff. There's elements there. You're doing the man with the shoe. <laughs> I'm open to exploring it for sure. I mean, if we could do Men in Black, I'm sure we could probably mm. find a way to justify this. So I can justify I wouldn't it. I would rule it out. Yeah, okay, well, I won't rule it out. We're always getting suggestions for ones to put in that are a bit iffy. And I think there's actually ones that we've discussed that are more iffy than miscongeniality. I actually would be on board with doing it. There you go. Okay. Uh, have you ever actually seen it, Cam? Nope. Oh, it's really good. It is good. <laughs> it's and great. And William Shatner's in it. Yeah. And Harry Palmer. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There you go. Wow. Armed and fabulous. Coming yeah. soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that pivots us over to what we're doing this week. Cam, what's the film? Well, Scott, we're going back to 1985 to reunite with Dabney Coleman and meet up with Tom Hanks in The Man with One Red Shoe. I, I remember reading about this film and I think one of us suggested it to the other and I just thought it's such a crazy sounding idea for a film and a crazy cast as well. A cast that, I mean, was it crazy at the time though? I don't think it no. was as crazy. Nowadays it looks insane to have all these talents in one movie, but in 1985, I think not the case for at least a few of them. Yeah. No, I, I was happy to see because there's a few people in, in this film that I don't think we'll ever get a chance to talk about again in spy movies. Um, well, not Laurie Singer. <laughs> yeah, I guess Laurie Singer. <laughs> Carrie Fisher. Oh. Um, well, no, no, we will see Carrie Fisher in another one. Oh, okay. Right. Can't wait for that. Well, let's hit the letterbox.com synopsis. Uh, I'm going to go straight in. The man with one red shoe. Mugged, bugged, chased, and seduced. Why is everyone after Tom Hanks? A man is mistaken as a spy by the CIA when he arrives at the airport with one red shoe. Wow. <laughs> that that synopsis is like 75% taglines. I know. <laughs> yeah. And I, I put a lot more emphasis on words to make it sound cooler than how it's written. There, there's no punctuation in this. 
That's just me. It's almost um, it's almost like there's a lack of effort put into um, things relating to the man with one red shoe. <laughs> that's uh, it's funny you should say that. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll get to, I'll save my thoughts for later on that one. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, I'd like to know more about how this man got his red shoe. But have any of us seen or heard of this film before we get to that? Uh, I had. I'd seen it back in the late eighties, and yes, so I'd very much heard of it. Oh, interesting. Okay. What were your thoughts at the time? Um, like most eighties films, um, a lot different. It, not in a bad way, but obviously you see things as you get older that you wouldn't have seen back then. Um, mm. but I enjoyed it back then, and I thought it was a fun film to watch. Now, nice, a bit of nostalgia as well for me. Okay. Um, I'd never seen it myself, but a few years ago, I remember seeing a box set uh, for sale uh, at my work. And it had, it was like, a, I think a four pack of Tom Hanks movies. And it had The Burbs. Oh, um, it had, yeah, uh, the Joe Dante film. It had, oh God, I wish I could even remember. Um, that was, uh, it, well, needless to say, it had The Burbs and then it had The Man with One Red Shoe. And it was $5. <laughs> And I didn't buy it. (laughs) (laughs) End of story. (laughs) That's a hell of an anecdote right there, Cam. (laughs) And it sat on that shelf forever. I don't don't even know if they ever sold it. Maybe they donated it. I don't know. I'd never heard of it. It it certainly wouldn't have jumped out to me if I'd seen it at a video store back in the day. Uh, Not that I was going to video stores in 1985. I wasn't born. (laughs) Um, Hmm. But Cam, how did the man with one red shoe come to be. What a story this is. <laughs> Let me just say, when I'm doing research on, um, uh, you know, how a production was put together, when you're talking about, say, something like The Bourne Legacy, there's a lot of information out there. Um, I'm sure when we do Mission Impossible movies, there'll be lots there. Bond movies, there's tons. Um, the man with one red shoe, minimal. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> I can understand that, definitely, yeah. yeah. The story sort of starts with a producer named Victor Dry, who was a Casablanca-born producer, came to Hollywood, and he had a minor success in Gene Wilder's Woman in Red. Has anyone seen The Woman in Red? Oh, years ago, but I I don't remember it, but I I have seen it. Okay. It came out in 1984, made about $25 but it was a remake of a French film. And so Victor Dry was like, hold the phone. I may have found the recipe for success. And that is to remake French films with American (laughs) casts for an American audience. And so he looked at another movie called Le Grand Blonde avec une chasseur noir. And I've just butchered my French and I apologize to all French speaking listeners. I failed French and you can see why. (laughs) Nonetheless, the movie translates to The Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe, and it was from 1972. Um, It actually had decent reviews online, so maybe it's worth checking out. It did spawn a sequel called Return of the Tall Blonde Man in 1974. Uh, I don't know. Maybe these are stay tunes for the podcast. I don't know. What do you think, Scott? I mean, we'll have to scrape the barrel at some point, Cam. (laughs) Well, I think we're doing that maybe this week. We'll see. (laughs) Is that me or the film? (laughs) Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, needless to say, I guess the tall blonde man with one black shoe was something of a hit. And so he transported over here. And that film was written by Francis Weber and Yves Robert. 
And <laughs> he hired a writer named Robert Klein. Robert Klein had written on um, episodes of MASH. He'd also written a film called Unfaithfully Yours, starring Dudley Moore. Has anyone seen or heard of this movie? Heard of it, but not seen it. Okay. I had not heard of it. Um, I've never seen it either. Nonetheless, that was sort of his introduction into writing comedy films. And so he got brought in by Dry to write this film. Um, Robert Klein actually went on to have a bit of a career. He wrote National Lampoon's European Vacation. He wrote both Weekend at Bernie's films and also directed the second one. And those films were actually also produced by Victor Dry. And he also wrote the movie Folks, um, starring Tom Selleck. Did anyone see that? I haven't seen it. Yeah, I remember trailers for it and commercials mm. back in the 90s, but I never saw it. And he ultimately later went on and worked on the Tracy Ullman show, Tracy Takes On, and he won oh, an Emmy for that. So Loved that show. Yeah, good for Robert Klein. It all turned out okay. But he mm. did like seem to have sort of a long-term collaboration with Victor Dry. Um, this was just kind of the beginning point of that. They brought in a director, Stan Dragotti, who had done a couple comedies, one called Love at First Bite, which I have vague memories of being a thing. But his big success was a 1983 breakthrough comedy, I think probably at least Lorraine has heard of, called Mr. Mom. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've definitely seen that. <laughs> Michael Keaton. I think you've mentioned it to me before, Cam, but I don't think I've seen it. Okay, you haven't seen it. Yeah, it was like a big Michael Keaton comedy from 1983. So Dragati had some heat behind him. And um, this was kind of the tipping point for his career in a lot of ways. Mr. Mom was really big. Then he made this. And then he went on to do a couple movies that um, I did see when I was younger, like um, She's Out of Control with Tony Danza, which was a real, boy, My in my house, that got a lot of replays. And then also he did Necessary Roughness with Scott Bakula. And that was pretty much the end of his career. He did, really didn't work past about like 1991 or something. I mean, once you've worked with Daphne Coleman, what more is there to do? <sighs> I know you went. You go from like Coleman to Donny Tanza to Scott Bakula. No, we're not. Is go. that are you talking about Quantum Leap here? He, there's nothing wrong with him. <laughs> yeah, he was the star. <laughs> no, I love Daphne Coleman. I'm on board. I'm on about the other fella. <laughs> Scott Bakula. Oh, Bakula. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't he in Quantum Leap? Wasn't that who he was? Yeah. 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 I loved that show. Yep, Captain on uh, Star Trek Enterprise as well. Oh. So, yeah. Now they bring Tom Hanks onto this movie. Tom Hanks is right like at that point where he's about to explode now he's had a huge he's coming off a huge hit um he mm. had made the movie splash the year before um everyone had turned down splash that was one of those movies that got shopped around every actor turned it down tom hanks was coming off of sort of a period working in tv and he hadn't really made many movies at all but he ended up doing splash it was number 10 in 1984 box office made $70 million. So it was a big hit in, especially domestically. Um, but I mean, he'd also the year before made bachelor party, which was a bit of a hit. And in 85, he had two movies. He had this one as well as volunteers, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but he's not quite at the megastar Tom Hanks. That comes a couple years later in 88 when he does big. So like men with one red shoe falls in that interesting period where he's obviously in demand He's getting a lot of projects thrown his way, but he hasn't quite become the superstar we know. He's 28, we should say, at the time, too. So, uh, you know, he's right at that young age, too. It's kind of crazy, actually, to go back and see a young Tom Hanks when we consider him now as like our... Well, he plays characters like Mr. Rogers. He's like father to mm. the world. 
this was the bit I was really fascinated to hear because you know you look at the cast apart from Tom Hanks, you go okay Jim Belushi sure Carrie Fisher sure they're good friends anyway, uh, Daphne Coleman makes sense eighties film, I'd never heard of it this all makes sense and then you see Tom Hanks, and you think why have I never heard of this film before? Yeah, well we'll we'll find out in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying here. I'm trying, <laughs> and uh, and we should also say Dabney Coleman. This was his follow up to Cloak and Dagger, a movie we covered on the podcast. So he was yes. kind of going back to back with uh, espionage related films, and also a little bit of a note: Dabney Coleman would later play Tom Hanks's father in You've Got Mail in 1998. Mm-hmm. I didn't know he played the father in that. That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And wasn't he in a film called Spy Hard? <laughs> Leslie Nielsen, 96. Was he? I don't remember that movie well enough. He could have been. We, we should remember that film mm. better. I was wondering, was that, yeah, I was like, was that where you, where you got your name from? Sadly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but for copyright reasons, no, I came up with it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Scott. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a couple other people I will reference just working on this film. Robert H. Klein was a cinematographer on this movie, and he was actually a long-term working cinematographer. He did some major projects like the 1976 remake of King Kong. He also was the uh, um, director of photography on Star Trek The Motion Picture, which is one of the best-looking Star Trek movies in the uh, pantheon of Star Trek films. you'd agree, Scott? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I didn't like it at first, but I love it now. Yeah, so there was some you know prestige behind the camera there, as well as we had a score... By Thomas Newman, who Thomas Newman, um, well, we're going to cover him later down the road. I think we may have already actually on the podcast, but he would go on to score Skyfall, Spectre, Bridge of Spies. So real bona fides. I think he's something like a 15-time Oscar nominee or something like that. Oh, it was Charles Durnan that starred in Spied Hard, not Daphne Coleman. Oh, okay. Either way. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just re- I was just, I I was just checking the same thing, Lorraine. Don't worry. <laughs> No, it's actually here, written down. (laughs) Now, Scott, I'm curious, though, when it came to the score, did it sound like the man behind Skyfall? Uh, I couldn't compare the two, although I have to say I I friggin' love the score to this film, and I don't remember the score to Spectre or Skyfall that much. (laughs) I love 80s scores (laughs) in that you can work in one of those whistles that goes like, and it sounds completely natural. (laughs) Anything with a slap bass, I'm there. Uh, So as for maybe why this movie isn't necessarily remembered now, it cost about $16 million. Domestically, it made $9 million. Oh. (gasps) Really? Yeah. And it didn't appear to get an overseas release. Oh, ouch. So, yeah. Um, It was number 93 for the year of 1985, right between the sex comedy Mischief which I think had Kelly Preston in it, and a teen drama called That Was Then, This Is Now, which I had never heard of. This, uh, this man's going to have no shoes left by the end of this. <laughs> and the top three for this year, number one worldwide was Out of Africa, number two was Back oh. to the Future, and number three was Rambo, First Blood Part Two. Oh, great film. Mm-hmm. Having just watched Back to the Future again, I just picked up the, the 4K set uh and just thinking that these two films came out the same year it's that's crazy it is it's also crazy to see that out of africa beat back to the future when you think of i think just legacy wise i mean out of africa did win the oscar that year but 
I think longevity wise, I think Back to the Future has had much more of a life than Out of Africa. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I don't have the 4K Blu-ray for Out of Africa, no. Not yet. Not yet. Um, <laughs> as for some spy films that made the box office uh, worldwide listings that year, down at number 10, a movie that Lorraine referenced earlier, Spies Like Us. Oh, that's a great film. At number 13, we had A View to a Kill. Number 52, Falcon and the Snowman, which co-starred Laurie Singer. Number 58, we had Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. That's a stay tuned, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and at number 76, Gotcha, a movie we've gotten a lot of requests to cover actually on the podcast, so we'll do at some point. I don't really know anything about it, but I'm excited to see it. And it should be noted that all of the movies I've just listed all beat The Man with One Red Shoe. <laughs> But we're going with this one first. <laughs> and um, uh, just some other notables. Tom Hanks also co-starred in Volunteers, a movie I referenced earlier. That landed at number 45, so it performed better than this film did. And way down at number 177 was a film um, that um, Laurie Singer co-starred in called Trouble in Mind, co-starring Chris Christopherson. I know nothing about that one, and it seems that no one saw it. So there you have it. That kind of sums up the journey of The Man with One Red Shoe. What a what a long and winding road it took to get here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, let's get into it then. You two have some history with the film. I don't have anything, so I'm going to go last. Lorraine, you saw it in the 80s and were kind of... You enjoyed it. Um, going back to it in 2021. Yeah. What did you think? Yeah, no, I would have... Because I obviously was a big fan of Splash, and I seen that in the 80s. Um, so I would have known who Tom Hanks was. Um, I just... I think like back then, I just think it's just a fun film. I think it's one of those films just don't take too seriously. You know, don't read too much into it and just kind of enjoy it. I mean, you know, there are parts like I love the whole spy element of it because it's quite ridiculous. It's also obvious, yet they think they're also like, you know, they're so good at what they're doing, but they're really not. Um, But no, I just I enjoyed it. I've seen a lot of bad uh, reviews about it, but I personally liked it. Cam? Um, it's a weird one. Like, it really is. Like, it's a movie I can't say, like, oh, I hated this movie. Like, to me, when I compare this to, say, like, a Men in Black 2, that's a really unfair comparison, because I think Men in Black 2 is an actively terrible movie. This one is just, it's a strange movie, in that it's doing that 80s high concept thing, where a lot of 80s comedies, it's just the concept. That's it. Like, they aren't writing a lot of punchlines or gags or anything into the movie. A lot of it's just like, I don't know what happens if a funny dude gets thrown into a weird situation. Let's just see how that plays out. <laughs> and that's not even a criticism. That's just a lot of eighties comedies. Yeah. But I, I feel like this is one that doesn't quite do it as well, but it's, it's shot. Well, um, it's, you know, got a cast. that's a lot of fun to watch. It's just like, I feel like it's missing that kind of comedic spark that comes out of it. it I don't know. Like, it seems like it's more focused sometimes on the spy plot, which is admittedly fairly thin, but it seems more focused on selling that than actually the comedy of the situation. So it was kind of a weird beast in that I think it's supposed to be just a comedy, but I didn't really find it that funny, but it also wasn't painful to watch. It was very breezy, moved quickly. You've got fun actors in there, but it's just kind of like, well, like I can understand why it's a more forgotten 80s comedy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I can understand your takeaway there. I, I think for me, as a, a completely brand new viewer to this, 
I, I struggle to figure out where this film sits. And I agree that I enjoyed it, Lorraine, like you did. And I also agree it's kind of a strange one, Cam. You think of like our, our other 80s spy films that we've covered so far, mainly the comedy ones, uh, Cloak and Dagger and Jumpin' Jack Flash. Jumpin' Jack Flash had like Whoopi Goldberg dragging the script through the film. Mm-hmm. And she's great. And then Cloak and Dagger had all this quite dark humor to it and this really it's a kids film but like a horrible side to it but that made it kind of interesting this film hasn't got anything to hang its hat on yeah like like what's the hook of this one that makes it stand out like i agree with lorraine like it's a totally breezy watch believe me this is the epitome of a movie i would have watched Say if I was homesick from school back in the day, mm. and if I turned this mm. on in the afternoon, I would have totally enjoyed my ninety minutes of watching this movie. It's very painless to watch, but it's kind of like you're right. Um, Whoopi Goldberg is a that is a star vehicle for her in Jumpin' Jack Flash, um, in um, Cloak and Dagger. That's a really crazy movie. Like they're doing some subversive things, a lot of Hitchcock tropes going on with that movie. It's really interesting, I think, in a lot of ways, even if it's not a great movie. Whereas like this one, I don't even know if we can look at it as a Tom Hanks early star vehicle because he feels kind of sidelined a lot of the movie. It's just kind of a weird beast in that I think it really is just more of a spy comedy, but I don't even know if it's that much of a comedy. I wondered if it was making some sort of commentary on the CIA throughout the movie, but I wasn't sure if it was focused enough to be doing that in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, I would I would say it's kind of it, it feels like there's not a very good script behind this. Whereas I think the actors they've got are, would are great and do as much as they can with it, but there's just not really anything to to work with there. Mm-hmm. And I it, it's supposed to be a spy comedy, and I think I laughed twice. I'm yeah. about the same boat. But what yeah. about you, Lorraine? Yeah, no, it wasn't like a laugh out loud moment. I mean, there was particular scenes. Um, that were I found quite amusing um, the bedroom one for one you know with them all behind the the two-way mirror thing um, but yeah it wasn't a laugh out loud thing like I remember other 80s films being you know but I agree that he was I didn't feel like Tom Hanks was kind of like the main thing like I was more like I thought Tori Spelling Tori Spelling sorry Tori um, Laurie Singer sorry I thought she kind of was the one that stood out for me I liked her in it yeah, like it's kind of tragic that Laurie Singer didn't have more of a career because I think she's actually mm. pretty strong. She's she's coming off of Flashdance. Um, she has a few things in the years to come, but then her career just kind of disappears. And I, I can't help but wonder if she got cast in this movie because she looks noticeably like Daryl Hannah, who, of course, was in... That, Sp- that's exactly... You were thinking that too? That's exactly what I thought. I did when I... Because so, um, I think Footloose, when she did Footloose... Um, when like cause she was massive in that obviously and then when i was watching this i was like she looks exactly like daryl hannah with the hair i mean she's beautiful and like you know the body and everything and i was just like they've basically just given us another daryl hannah yeah did i say she was in flash dance because i met foot i meant foot uh footloose i know <laughs> <laughs> they're both dancing <laughs> yeah they were big 80s dancing movies nonetheless exactly. yeah that was jennifer beals is in flash yes. dance my my uh, mistake there but yeah footloose is a big deal so i i thought she was really good in this movie and it is mm. weird that when you look at the central cast she's the one with the least of a career out of any of them yeah no i thought that was really strange because she's really good in it because i had a look in, to, to see what she's done since and i was really surprised that i actually didn't really know her apart from this and um footloose 
I couldn't really think of anything else. She is a professional musician as well, and I think oh. she's just mostly done that with her career. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, it, it's just kind of weird that when you watch a movie like this, where you're seeing a lot of the stars of, if not the time, like Dabney Coleman's a star at the time, but you've got yeah. a lot of the stars of Tomorrow in Tom Hanks. Um, I mean, Jim Belushi's going to go on to have a very lengthy mm. comedy career as well. Uh, it's just weird that Laurie Singer, who does feel like, kind of like it feels like she's the movie star in this movie mm-hmm. you know movies surrounded by movie stars <laughs> yeah no i agree i thought that too did you get that scott i see this is where i think i struggled with the film is that i didn't really care about anyone mm. um even laurie singer's character I, I didn't particularly care about and one thing i was very surprised by is that they had carrie fisher and this is two years after return of the jedi so you know her star must be quite high surely one would think and she's her character and Jim Belushi's character are basically pointless. It was weird because Carrie Fisher, yeah, Star Wars. Plus, she'd done the Blues Brothers at this point. Um, you'd think that they would want to give her major comedy showcases, but maybe I don't know. Like I know Carrie Fisher had a lot of personal problems around this point in time. Maybe she didn't want big spotlight roles and wanted more supporting characters. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, I thought she was strange casting for this. Like, I know she reunites with him with the burbs and stuff, but I thought that she was really strange. I think the thing with Carrie Fisher was she had Star Wars and she never was really given anything decent after that. I think that's it that people took her on because they thought, oh, she's Star Wars. She's going to bring in all the Star Wars fans. But obviously this Mm. is nothing like Star Wars. And I feel like she never, ever really got that chance. Not that I can think of. Someone might be able to disagree with that. Um, to actually get her teeth into something that wasn't, you know, Star Wars related. And she just got bits like this and the burbs and stuff like that, where she didn't get well, a chance to... her in a bikini. Well, that's the first thing I thought. I said, oh, there she is in her bikini. I mean, don't get me wrong. She looks amazing. But, you know, I, I just felt like she could have been given something really good to sink her teeth into. And I never felt she really got the chance. And I think that's because of Star Wars. Well, I think it's very telling that she becomes a writer and a very acclaimed writer Mm. um, in the years around this and moving forward. You know, she writes the book um, Postcards from the Edge, which turns into a Meryl Streep. Did she write that? I didn't know that. Yeah, that was a book she wrote. Yeah. Um, And so like Carrie Fisher became a one of the go to script doctors in Hollywood and worked on, I'm sure, more movies than we could even name in terms of behind the scenes, uncredited work. Um, I think she even did uncredited work on the Star Wars prequels, you know, coming in and problem solving some of those films. So like Carrie Fisher has a very long career. It's just one that's out of the spotlight because yeah. we think of her so much as this icon of Princess Leia. And where did her career go? But I also feel like she was very busy just in ways well, maybe that that's it then. kind of. Yeah, maybe she's want to shun the spotlight in mm. some ways. I, I really don't know. I should I should read more of her autobiographies because I'm sure it would answer all these questions. Mm. Yeah, definitely. It's just weird that we've got a film that's got, you know, Woody, Princess Leia, and Dabney Coleman. Woody. (laughs) None of them particularly shine. It is weird, because let's talk about Tom Hanks, because this is Tom Hanks coming off of Splash, which is a huge hit. Mm. This is a very subdued comedic turn from Tom Hanks. No, I agree. He, he He wasn't the comedy actor that I know him as in this. To be honest with you, I would have thought that he almost did this before Splash, if you get... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If I didn't know the years, I would have thought this was before Splash. It feels very unpolished, doesn't it? Like, mm. I mean, he'd been working in sitcoms for a while. It feels like an actor segging 
from sitcoms into movies, but also not that confident in his abilities. And it's so weird. I was reading some interviews um, done with him on the set of this movie. And there's a lot of like cocky 28 year old guy kind of stuff going on. It's kind of like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, I got a lot of picks now and that sort of thing. And it's just so interesting to go back and listen in on what a 28 year old Tom Hanks is saying, you know, kind of with a little bit of uh, bragging kind of going on (laughs) on the set of this movie. (laughs) Oh, bless. (laughs) Because you don't think of Tom Hanks as like a bragging type person, do you? No. Like the Tom Hanks of today. But just imagine being a 28 year old who's like launched to the top of the list. I don't care who you are. You're going to be unbearable in some way, shape or form. (laughs) I said Evian. (laughs) (laughs) Only brown M and M's, or maybe red. It should be red M and M's. Yeah, exactly. Oh uh, yeah, that's it. Should be red. He he gets signed to this film where he gets to roll around with Carrie Fisher in a bikini, which I think was every bloke's dream around that time. Yeah, it was. Um, so I can understand why he was a bit braggy in interviews. And that black dress that he got to roll around—well, was it roll around with uh, Laurie Singer? Yeah, kind with, of. That showed a little bit of her bum. That was hilarious. That bit. I have questions about that dress. Like, is that how, uh, Lorraine? <laughs> I've worn a few dresses in my life, but I've never worn one like that. Um, is that how it's cut, or did they just do? Are there dresses like this? I've never seen one. I think the the, dre- the only dress I ever saw. Like, I'm I'm more of a I'm not a dress type person. Um, but the the only dress I ever saw that kind of showed a lot was when Jennifer Lopez wore that green one to the Grammys or something. But when I saw that. I don't think I've ever saw a dress that showed that much of your bum. I've seen low back dresses, but I thought, I mean, she pulled it off. But, um, yeah. <laughs> whenever, I get my, whenever I get my bum out of my jeans like that, people just try and throw coins in it most of the time. <laughs> yeah, but guys do do that, don't they? With their boxer shorts, they wear the, je- the jeans underneath their boxer shorts. It looks really uncomfortable. I, I, I've not been in tune with fashion since the <laughs> mid-90s. I, I'm still wearing, like, reflective tracksuit bottoms. you got a shell suit. Uh, yeah exactly exactly i'm wearing one now i just wondered like that's dress it's crazy but it's also i don't know the 80s was such a weird fashion time i couldn't help but wonder if you would have seen dresses like this at like club 54 or something back in the day oh god at studio 54 i i mean i obviously lived through the 80s i was born in the 70s so my fashion was questionable in the 80s but um i loved every bit of it i have to say but yeah i don't think you see anything like what she was wearing now maybe you'd see the dress design but not the sparkliness of it because <laughs> that was very 80s it was a choice yeah oh it was definitely a choice now i'm we're not a sexist podcast here <laughs> so cam i would also give you the opportunity have you ever worn a dress like that I'm wearing one right now <laughs> you need to i don't know how tall you guys are but i feel like i'm five two so i would not be able to pull that off i feel like you need to be tall yeah because i think they said laurie singers i think it said five ten online oh she's definitely I am not five ten are you shorter than that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I couldn't pull it off, unfortunately. I'm close, close, but. Yeah. No, I definitely <laughs> not that, couldn't. Not that close, not that close. <laughs> it would be literally down by my knees, that curvy bit. <laughs> That's a whole nother film. <laughs> it's a, you know, a dress like that, you wonder if they were looking for uh, an actress to pull that off as well when they were coming to casting because. Oh, definitely. Very few. Yeah. Very few human beings are going to pull off that dress. Well, you have that scene of her where they're at the baseball game and she's running through with the typical, you know, those shorts that um, they used to wear and stuff like that. And she's just like this goddess. So yeah, you, you needed a certain actress to actually wear that to, for it to fit because an actress, my height, it would not have worked. 
I'm not saying anything about short girls were amazing, but you know, we know what we're capable of. <laughs> it's interesting watching this movie now too, because they used to cast a very specific type of actress in a lot of these movies. Like mm. there is a very similar template kind of look they were looking for when it came to this type of casting choice and uh she fits right into it but fortunately she's actually a good actress as well really good i really thought she did this well and like footloose so Mm -hmm. well does she have the most interesting role in the movie because a lot of the characters get one thing you're like the you know the crooked cia guy or you're the clueless dude like tom hanks but like she gets to play a little bit of duality where she actually mm. gets to go on a character journey where she starts off as an agent working with Dabney Coleman, but gets to actually transition over the course of the movie into someone who changes their kind of moral compass. And uh, for some reason wants to spend the rest of their life perhaps with Tom Hanks. Although I don't know that the character earns that, but nonetheless, <laughs> she gets to go on a journey. Definitely. I agree. She's the only one that really does. Yeah. I mean, I've never been serenaded by Tom Hanks playing a violin, so maybe that might sell it for me. I don't know. I couldn't help but watch that scene and wonder, is that a thing that works? <laughs> well, it worked for John Cusack and Say Anything with his big ghetto blaster, but I don't think it would work. Na- no, it wouldn't work for me. I'd have to like you. <laughs> yeah. And like the, the 80s Tom H- uh, Hanks hair is amazing too. Is it really changed that much? <laughs> I think he keeps it more close crop yeah. these days. I he don't think it's ha- like the afro that it is. Uh, it you is know, amazing though. He does have great hair. Yeah. But that's yeah. the 80s, isn't it? <laughs> he of course has the eyes of a sexually repressed male. <laughs> okay, so I feel like that was like a big comedic punchline of the movie that didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Where Dabney Coleman really hones in. He's like, well, clearly this uh, Tom Hanks character, uh, his name's Richard in the film is very sexually repressed and that's the focus of like the rest of the movie but i wasn't sure that the uh comedic purpose of this really paid off in a big way <laughs> well they go for the whole thing of like saying oh yeah he spent a year in a sanatorium and he had sex with a, a, a student nurse and i'm like do we need this <laughs> what, what is this setting up is he a, is he a sexual pest he is is he? is he yes he's shagging his best his mate's wife it takes two to tango. Yeah, I know, but there's two there. Like, I thought, like, they make this guy all innocent and sweet and stuff like that, and he's having it away with Carrie Fisher, playing Tarzan and Jane. I I couldn't <laughs> tell if that was, like, an 80s thing, if it's, like, this is more permissible in an 80s comedy that a character would do this, versus now he would be instantly labeled a sleazebag. I couldn't tell. No, it's never good to have an affair, no matter what decade you're in. <laughs> You don't think, though, in an 80s comedy that this is, like, considered okay for this character? Like, he's still considered a likable character to an audience? No. Okay. Because, like, Jim Belushi's played off as this idiot. Yeah. So you're almost rooting for Tom Hanks and Carrie Fisher to get together at that point in the film. But then you're justifying it. You're just saying, well, his mate's a bit of an idiot. He took his shoe. And look at the trouble he got into because of it. He broke his tooth. (laughs) I know, but the... how dare he? Yeah, but... No, I, all right. I, I, I will. I will. Make, I will put the record straight. I do not justify or, <laughs> or you know, think that cheating is a is a good thing to do. I, I've been cheated on. It's not fun. But I just feel like this film wants you to not worry about that. No, I agree. I agree with you. But I, I like thought to myself, you've got this kind of, you know, especially at the beginning, because he almost looks a bit like, you know, he's where's his mom? You know, she forgot to dress him this morning, and. Um, mm then so yeah you do like him he's got caught up in all this stuff and then you see that and you're like nah you're just like other people there's nothing innocent about you whatsoever that's just my view 
no, no. He's he's a he's a. What's strange, and I think probably one of the reasons why you don't get behind Tom Hanks's character as much is that he's an idiot and he doesn't grow throughout the film, and everything just sort of falls into his lap. Is it? I wonder if the problem is the fact that we can't quite figure out this Tom Hanks character hmm? is maybe part of the problem is they didn't focus in on specifically what makes this character funny or why it's really, you know, wacky to throw this guy in a spy plot. Like Whoopi Goldberg's character in Jumpin' Jack Flash is very specific. We understand the Whoopi Goldberg persona. We understand why her character is a little bit strange. This guy, a lot of it... You can kind of watch the movie and say, okay, well, he kind of dresses weird. I guess he's like an eccentric musician. But the movie doesn't really give you fun character quirks or anything for him to play. It's just kind of like, well, he's just kind of weird, I guess. I don't know. Like, it doesn't feel very specific. The way if they made this movie, say, for example, nowadays and cast, I don't know, like, uh, you know, like an Adam Sandler or I don't know. Pick your um, comedy star of today, um, Melissa McCarthy. I don't care who they would have a very specific personality type. Whereas mm. I just don't feel like Tom Hanks has one in this movie. Yeah, I know. I agree. Cause I thought as well, you know, at the beginning when he's teaching that young boy, a uh, music lesson. Yeah. Like he didn't come across like a nice teacher. You know, there was parts of him that I just didn't think was nice. And then when he answered the phone and it was Paula and she, no, when he went to see Paula and she didn't want to see him anymore because of her husband and stuff like that, he was like delighted. And so there was elements of him where he just kind of got away with stuff as well that I didn't like like he got let off the hook when she said look we shouldn't do this anymore you know and when he was teaching that young boy he come across as a bit mean and a bit pervy as well at times uh, pervy goes with the 80s doesn't it though <laughs> it does but you walk into your room okay I don't care how hot she is when you walk into your apartment and some woman's standing there and he just believes everything that comes out of her mouth you're like and just looks at her in a certain way I didn't like that bit <laughs> yeah Men are pigs, so there is that. Not all of them. Uh, <laughs> Am yeah. I standing up for I, I, men and you aren't? <laughs> I, I feel, though, when you look at stars of that era, you know, Bill Murray, for example, um, <laughs> yeah. John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, they're very, mm. like, they have a very specific comedic persona. Mm. And I don't know, like, does Tom Hanks have one or is Tom Hanks an actor who inhabits characters? And so if you don't write him a character... He's not necessarily going to bring it to life because like I was a fan when I was younger of example, for example, the uh, 1987 movie Dragnet he did. Mm. But that's a very specific type of character they've given him to play. And going forward, a lot of the movies Tom Hanks makes, the ones that really put him on the map, you know, A League of Their Own, going right into all the Oscar stuff, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, very specific characters. Whereas I feel like maybe some of his early comedies when they're trying to figure him out. They're just kind of like, I don't know, just be Tom Hanks, you know, be kind of a wacky guy. But it just doesn't feel as refined as, you know, a lot of those stars who are being brought up um, working on Saturday Night Live, for example. You know, Eddie Murphy's, those types of guys. I um, mm. I think that's actually a really good point. I never thought of that. But my thing with him with the 80s was they were trying to make him like the cutesy guy next door. Do you know that type of thing? Mm -hmm. that's how i felt but i never i think i never thought of that with the character thing um yeah it was like they didn't know what to do with him but then you know he gets a specific role in the films that you mentioned so he can play that you're a cop you're a you know whatever but with this yeah no that's actually a really good comment i never thought of that well when you go back to the 80s comedies which was a crucial time for tom hanks like what are the the ones that have endured that we look back on you know when they're doing the tribute to tom hanks's career 
which of those movies are they going to highlight? I feel, you know, Splash because it's a big hit for sure. Big. Big for sure. Again, a very specific comedy. You are a child in an adult's body. Like that Mm -hmm. is a character for sure. Um, And maybe Joe versus the Volcano, which has gotten a bit of a uh, reappraisal over the years. But I feel like a lot of these movies, you know, like this one or Volunteers, I, I just think they make the mistake of not really giving him a, a real character to dig into. I think um, The Burbs is like, I absolutely love The Burbs. It's like one of my favorite films. I think it's brilliant. And I feel like he got kind of a certain role in that. But I feel like it's not, it's a film that people don't know. And I mm-hmm. think they should, you know, it's like a hidden gem of his, you know. Well, like Joe Dante is a director who made some really good movies that no one really paid that much attention to. The Burbs being one. Um, I always think of Matinee as well with um, John Goodman, which is a really fantastic movie. Mm. But, you know, John uh, Joe Dante movies have their cults, but they don't have that big across the board sort of, um, you know, appeal mm. to people. Mm. Well, coming off of Tom Hanks's performance, can anyone answer me this question? Why did they need his toothpaste? Okay, I'm glad you bring this up. Does anyone have any ideas? <laughs> no. I've watched this film twice. I'm still scratching my head. I understand taking his teeth, I guess. I understand. No, I don't understand that. Why were they ripping his clothes up? Why did they change the yeah, pipe the clothes in his house? thing. What was that about? Uh, I thought this was some sort... That's why I was wondering early on if this was some sort of satire, making fun of the CIA and the intelligence networks. Um because of the things like this where they're just doing stupid things and being so inept that they can't even put plumbing back together. I guess that was it. I don't understand the toothpaste thing. And it pays off in a really badly directed comedy moment with bubbles coming out of his mouth where it's Mm -hmm. like, Ooh, this did not pay off the way I think they wanted it to. But um, I I guess that's it. That's the, the, you know, playing up that the CIA are buffoons. Well, they're, they're definitely playing that because especially, you know, um, when they're looking through the two way mirror and they all start drinking champagne or something. Mm-hmm. Like that was a ridiculous thing to do. Like so, from that, like you were kind of like, okay, yeah, you, you really are just playing up the, you know, the stupidity of what you guys actually are. You you haven't a clue what you're doing, you know. Um, but yeah, I think it was that that that's what it was, just to make him look stupid. <laughs> and both sides of the CIA in this movie are idiots because you've got Dabney Coleman leading the, the sprinklers. Sort of, I don't know. <laughs> well, like Dabney Coleman's leading this like renegade CIA faction that wants to take over. Uh, he wants to be the new CIA director, and so he's trying to – he's putting together some sort of conspiracy involving drug dealing, which is also an 80s trope. Hmm. Lots of drug dealing in 80s comedies. Um, but he's using this to overthrow the CIA director. So, like, Dabney Coleman's an idiot um, who's following <laughs> around Tom Hanks the whole time and looking like looking like a complete clown, which is, is a little more fun, and we'll talk about Dabney Coleman in a sec. But the other one, like Charles Durning, who's maybe <laughs> supposed to be the more respectable figure – He's an idiot, too, because we get all these scenes of him meeting with uh, Edward Herman as his assistant uh, with sprinklers going off. And it's just clear that, like, both sides are dim. I know. And also not very nice people. No. Yeah. Yeah. They're more than happy to let Tom Hanks get killed, really. Yeah. The the actual only nice person, I'm just looking at the IMDb list list right now, is Laurie Singer's character. Mm. Um, I agree. You might make it. Maybe Ed Herman. Yeah, I was going to say um, Edward Herman's character, I think you could make a defense of because he does actively bring up like, hey, this is like an innocent guy. What are we doing? Um, And he does take over as CIA director at the end of the movie. And I thought they missed a major punchline at the end of their movie 
which is when he announces he's the new CIA director and gets in the helicopter and takes off, mm. leaving Charles Durning on the ground. The fact they didn't have the sprinklers go off on Charles Durning at that <laughs> moment was a total missed oh, opportunity. That's true. Oh my God, that's such a great punchline. Right? Oh. Yeah, that's a definite Who two fingers up. again? <laughs> well, uh, I can't say. I mean, Scott, we'd have to go back and watch the tall blonde man with one black shoe to determine where these comedy beats came from, but... Uh, Robert Klein was the one who adapted it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Thanks, Robert Klein. <laughs> mm. That that shampoo uh, scene, the the bit, was all over the trailers. Was it? Yeah, I, I I made sure to watch like I watched two different trailers. So I'm guessing one was a teaser and one was a main, or they were just two different main trailers. And things like the him playing the concert and ripping the sleeve off of his uh, mm. jacket. His dinner jacket, which was a non-thing in the film. Yeah. And blowing bubbles out of his mouth. And the whole scene at the end on the train was basically the trailer. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, They're really playing the sort of fish out of water thing, which isn't actually how he is the entire film. He doesn't know what's going on for the entire film. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't play up the darts in the butt scene, which also uh, I feel Mm. like didn't land like it was supposed to. No, not at all. Usually one takes down a big a man. Okay. <laughs> Although it was nice to see the old couple from Cloak and Dagger uh, team up with Dabney Coleman again. <laughs> I know. It's two Dabney Coleman spy comedies with elderly agents running around with guns. <laughs> that is not something you'd see in 2021. Yeah. No. It's geriatric spies. <laughs> I, I did appreciate the uh, bicycle stunts in this movie that Tom Hanks is out there, uh, or his stunt double is out there doing bicycle stunts in the streets. That was, um, I feel like there was a lot of madcap chases in 80s movies as well, and this is coming after E.T., so bike chases are in. The logistics of that bit at the end where he tries to lance the car with that bit of wood, I don't know how he managed to get in front of the car. Yeah. Um, yeah. I another question I've got. Uh, yeah we're, we're, okay listen we're sitting here tearing this film to pieces and, and we're sorry about <laughs> wow. that because we're all just dumbfounded apparently tom yeah. hanks does as well he's not proud of it either apparently i've actually got a quote from him he says it's not a very good movie it doesn't have any real clear focus to it it isn't about anything in particular that you can honestly understand it made no money at all <laughs> Well, we'll see you next week, folks. <laughs> no, but I think the thing is, like, I agree with what he's saying, but there's something about 80s comedies, even one that's not successful, um, that makes them more watchable. Like, I think you could give me a lot of modern day comedies that are, say, lesser, that I would find torture to sit through. Whereas one like this, that's very breezy and, you know, 90, min- 90 minutes long, I find totally painless. And I can sit there and note, as we have, the comedy moments that don't work. But in terms of just kind of being a diverting watch, it, it mostly succeeds at that. I, mean, I would take this film in a heartbeat over anything Adam Sandler has any has ever done in terms of comedy. Ooh. I disagree. Billy Madison. Billy Madison is a masterpiece of surreal comedy. The Wedding Singer. Wedding Singer is good. Uh, Happy Gilmore. Happy Gilmore. What? Yep. Happy Gilmore for sure. Uh, I like Adam Sandler. All in the hips. I like Adam Sandler. Ugh. Uh, I, as a kid, I used to love Adam Sandler films. Little Nicky, for some reason, used to really tickle me. I liked that, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just can't but go back and watch him. And all the stuff he's done recently with his like little troupe of David Spade. and Oh, yeah. Um, his new stuff is terrible, uh, for sure. And James, all that stuff. Like, blah. Yeah. Uncut Gems is good, though. I never oh, saw that. Oh, it's amazing, yeah. Yeah, Uncut Gems is great. Punch Drunk Love is great. Like, I think Adam Sandler has had a pretty 
stellar career. He just, I mean, he's made a lot of money making movies that don't really grab me, but nonetheless. But here we are again talking about films that isn't the film we're meant to be talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of comedy moments that did work, though, one moment that actually genuinely got a laugh out of me was um, Jim Belushi's bike stunt where he's like chasing after the ambulance and then does that flip into the lake. It was the most like awkward looking stunt and it definitely got a laugh out of me. Yeah, I did enjoy that all the whole thing where he thought his wife was in the the van having sex. And then when he goes flying into the water, yeah, that was pretty impressive. <laughs> that, the whole ambulance thing was bizarre as well because you had that scene before it where they're at the lights with that guy and the, the, the driver of the ambulance and the, and the other car just giving each other like naughty looks. It's just very odd. I feel like the setup of that one is pretty clumsy in that we need to play this audio so loud that people are going to hear it everywhere. Like, that's kind of weird. And why didn't they just turn it off when they saw him behind them? <laughs> I don't have answers to these questions. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why don't you? <laughs> like, I feel like a lot of the comedic setups were very shaky. I mean, there's also the um, whole bit with him finding the bodies in the uh, apartment, uh, <laughs> you know, in Tom Hanks's apartment, and then they're being moved around. I feel like that's the sort of sequence that should have been a home run, but it's mm. kind of clunky. So you're like, well, I get the comedic value of it, but it's not quite clicking, even though I can appreciate that Jim Belushi's 100% committed to it. Yeah. Okay, we have this fantastic cast. Uh, how do we fix this film? Three <laughs> oh. people here that love cinema. What do we do to fix it? We have the same cast. You can't add anything else. What are we changing? Well, I just think it... It's it's the type of thing that's very difficult. Comedy is very, very, very hard to write. And so that's why when I see a comedy that isn't very good, it's just like the magic didn't land. You know, you're always with comedy looking for that magic in a bottle or lightning in a bottle to make it all work, to bring the inspiration to life. And I just, I don't know. I just don't think they really had it here. And I think even Tom Hanks says it didn't have any real clear focus. Maybe Maybe it just needed more focus. Do you think if they'd had, like, because when you think back to 80s comedy, you know, your Chubby Chases, Dan Aykroyd, and stuff like that, obviously I know they were young, but maybe it was the actors that they weren't comedic enough. Do you know what I mean? If you'd had more comedy actors, because those actors that were in it, I don't really, I, I mean, maybe there are, but I can't off the top of my head think of them as, like, comedy actors. So maybe if you had more people that were used to that type of role in it, it might have worked a bit better. Maybe the delivery recasting tom hanks so not so much him i'm thinking more the the older ones yeah how dare you how dare you (laughs) not dabney coleman Coleman. yeah (laughs) dabney coleman must stay um i don't know but like what happens if you you know put um i don't know like a major comedy star of the era like bill murray or eddie murphy or something in the lead actually i think dan Aykroyd would have been good someone who's yeah someone who's a very recognizable comic persona Mm -hmm. because you're automatically as an audience grafting yourself onto that i mean to be fair we should say a lot of people who would have been attending this movie which it seems like they came in the dozens (laughs) if that um they would have been bringing over their feelings towards tom hanks from splash Mm -hmm. so maybe that's enough maybe they were latching onto the splash persona well i did i did okay no that's interesting yeah so did it like work for you that sort of tom hanks splash bachelor party kind of persona I know me in the, because I would have probably seen this in the late 80s, because obviously we didn't get films 
like for a year or two sometimes um when they mm. released were released back then and i know i would have just seen this and thought it was a bit of fun do you know that way yeah um but looking at it now i do think i do think tom hanks like i love tom hanks i bloody love him but i think you could have done with probably someone like you know a dan Aykroyd, chevy chase bill murray that was a bit more experienced because like if you go back to a lot of 80s films with these guys in them i mean to me personally for me my best comedy decade was the 80s and it's because of the likes of your john candies and your bill murray's and all that kind of stuff and i think they could have maybe this maybe may have done better if it had one of them in it well here's a question lorraine actually for you someone who really studies their 80s comedies is tom hanks good at playing dumb because i feel like this character while he is a musical genius is kind of portrayed as kind of a dimwit throughout the movie and is that really his strength maybe no he's for me 80s tom hanks is more um cutesy you know he's the guy yeah. that you you know your mom yeah. hopes you bring home one day do you know that type of guy whereas in this i just i just didn't get that from him at all and you know when like obviously the you know you think and he's this bit um this nice guy and then you realize he's not so nice after all and stuff like this um it just didn't you know because in splash it wasn't the comedy in splash was from like uh john candy and uh eugene levy and stuff like that it wasn't from tom hanks you know yeah so and i i feel like tom hanks is pretty good to it playing a little bit neurotic or also a bit of a know-it-all you know you watch a movie like dragnet where he's definitely the guy who's more of a know-it-all and kind of snarky and i think that's way more fun than like it, I think it's very difficult to play a character like the one in this who's just oblivious to everything going on around them at all times. Yeah. Like, that's tough to make really work. Yeah, because there were certain things and you're just like, especially like, for instance, like I said, when he walked into the room and she's standing there, you know, it's like, it's like he just was willing to accept anything that was said to him. There was no, it's like he wasn't smart at all. If they made this movie in the 90s, they probably would have played him as a co- as a total stoner. Like someone who's just like completely yeah. out to lunch. Whereas... They're not going to do that in the 80s. And so you're just kind of left with this guy who, as we've said, we don't have a clear focus on who he is because he's a genius musician, but he's apparently oblivious to everything. It's just kind of weird. Yeah. And, you you know, you got to remember when he did come off Splash, he wasn't he was a different person like to what people were expecting. So they probably saw this and thought that's not the Tom Hanks that we were expecting because Splash was so big. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. The benefit of putting in a, a, a comedy heavyweight like Dan Aykroyd, like you suggested, Lorraine, would be also that they know what comedy is. So if the scene is, okay, Tom, we want you to stand there and blow shampoo bubbles out your mouth. Mm. I could see Tom Hanks just being like, okay. And then Dan Aykroyd would be like, well, actually, let's do it this way exactly. and try it this way exactly. and finding the joke. Yeah, because they're also like, you know, they're SNL um stars as well all these guys and if you i don't i don't know what 80s films you guys have have really watched watched in the terms of comedy but their their films are funny like you know you proper laugh when you watch a film with one of those guys in it i remember watching them and just thinking they were brilliant you know they were so spot on i even watched ghostbusters recently and like sorry i know talking about another film but i still found it funny and they were so quick and he didn't quite have that yet. Like, do you know what I mean? And I I don't really think as Tom Hanks as like a comedy actor. I know he's done some stuff like in The Burbs, actually, he is quite funny. But, you know, I just never really think when I think 80s comedy, I never think of Tom Hanks. I think of I, I, Tom Hanks. I think of the guy next door. He's the love interest. That's how I think of him more. 
I think this film is unfortunately a collision course between having a, 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 not a bad script necessarily, but just a script that hasn't got a lot there and an actor not necessarily in full swing, knowing how to take control of a scene and knowing how to make it funny. Hmm. So it, it hasn't combined into anything good. Did you guys, this is a really weird poll, but did you guys ever see Osmosis Jones from the 90s? No. No. Okay. Or what about Inner Space? Oh, gorgeous. Okay. Inner Space. There's another very similar movie. You want about the Martin Short one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of the action of both movies is about things going on inside of their bodies, Mm -hmm. right? So most of the focus is on the animated characters in Osmosis Jones or, um, you know, the Dennis Quaid Dennis team Quaid, yeah. inside Martin Short's body in inner space. Yeah. Um, but you see that in both cases, whether it is Martin Short or Bill Murray in Osmosis Jones, they are playing oblivious characters who all of the action is going on around them. They just are completely unaware of it. Mm. But they are getting very specific comedic performances out of that because, again, Bill Murray, Martin Short very well-honed comedic personas that we understand going in and they know how to tweak it and make it fun in a situation where the character's oblivious. And I think that this is something that was needed maybe here that just Mm. doesn't quite come across. Yeah, no, I agree. Martin Short was so spot on with that kind of thing. Um, Yeah, no, 100% agree with that, Cam. Well, I was going to say too, Scott, you know, you and I have covered some Hitchcock stuff at this point, uh, North by Northwest with Cary Grant, as well as uh, 39 Steps with Robert Donat. And in both cases, you have a similar thing where two guys don't know what's going on who are brought into spy plots. But I, I think we've seen like too that, and look, the writing going on in North by Northwest is a <laughs> a little bit higher up the old uh, pantheon than um, what's going on on uh, The Man with One Red Shoe. But you see how very specific comedic personas in the case of Cary Grant really work very well. And also the spy story that was crafted is actually intriguing. I don't think this one's bad though. Uh, I didn't really... Uh, one note I wrote down, and it was, I can't tell the difference between the teams. I know they're both CIA, but like I almost couldn't keep track of who was on what team for a good portion of it, so I didn't know who I was rooting for. I, I'm, I'm with you there, Scott. Yeah. I will admit I actually had to pause at one point and read a Wikipedia thing just to figure out what Dabney Coleman was actually doing. <laughs> I had to look a lot as well. Yep. Who's with who again? We didn't have Wikipedia in the in the cinema in the eighties. Damn it! Yeah. <laughs> so that is a damning statement, perhaps, on the plotting of the. Uh, but I think the idea of a rogue CIA faction trying to take over and set a guy up. I think, in broad terms, it totally works. It's just you're right. It's not um, dealt with with maybe the level of sophistication as the spy <laughs> plot of North by Northwest. <laughs> not not quite up there, I think. Uh, well, let's let's run through the rest of the actors in the film. We have spoken enough about Tom Hanks, I think, for now. Dabney Coleman, uh, my one of my favourite actors from the 80s and 90s, is back again. I'm so happy to see him. And he actually, for me, is one of the, the more fun parts of this film. I enjoyed him, but I, he didn't have as much to chew into as in um, uh, Cloak and Dagger, where he got a real character to play. But... Um, I think it is a skill to basically just sit there and watch monitors the whole time and have energy and actually bring that into a scene. And I think he's very good at that. Kind of a thankless job, but he's good at it. It's the first person to be like, Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne. That's <laughs> yeah. Dan Coleman. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And he'd done war games as well, which also had a lot of staring at screens. Yeah. I The only thing I found weird about the Daphne Coleman performance and maybe just the whole idea in, in general was the viewing windows in that house. 
I didn't get that either. I understand the honey trap setup and having like reverse windows, you have the cameras behind them maybe, or enough room for a person to stand there and take notes. But having cinema seating uh, and people like drinking drinks and watching people have sex, <laughs> that's a whole different kind of room. I, I guess the CIA are just like, well, they, they're workaholics, so they need to unwind. And I guess that's how they do it. I don't know. It was weird. Ew. <laughs> Yeah, they love their Tarzan and Jane noises, oh apparently. Yeah. yeah. Can't say I've ever done that. <laughs> we don't need to know, Scott. I'm never too old to try, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way about this film. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad I got to see Damney Coleman again. Yeah, it's always fun to see him. Um, we've spoken about Laurie Singer already, but any any other thoughts? Just wish she'd had a better career, really. Yeah. Yeah, I was surprised actually that how um how little she had done. Oh, she was in Fame as well, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I thought the bit where she had her hair stuck in his fly, um, <laughs> how how we got there was a a journey. But uh, you know, she 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 was game. She was playing along with the scene. You know, so I, I, props to her. I thought that was a great. I did enjoy that scene, and I thought it was so strange when they were like making their way up the steps to go to the bathroom to get some scissors. And you just see her, like, this is where, like, my true crime mind come in. And I just watched her legs kind of being dragged away on the floor. And I was like, oh, something bad's going to happen to this poor girl. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I feel like a lot of the kind of comedic set pieces of the movie don't maybe deliver the way they should. Like Tom Hanks with the plumbing, you know, flushing the toilets and stuff. It's like, yeah, whatever. What was that about again? What was It's because the CIA had, like, messed up all his plumbing. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, so like stuff like that doesn't really pay off, or you know the the body scene is eh, it's okay, but I felt like the scene with Laurie Singer and Tom Hanks there, the seduction scene, was probably the most effective. Mm. Um, le- least effective for me is the concert scene where all the CIA go to the Tom Hanks concert, and we see just how unprofessional musicians this whole team are. Um, yeah, that was bizarre. Because like when I watched that scene, the first thing I, all I could see was Paula being jealous. I didn't even yeah. think about the the um, agents. I just thought about Paul. And, and I agree with you. It was so unprofessional how they all acted. But it's crazy what lover do. Yeah, well, but even like though Tom Hanks just starts to break into his own music. Like his, I know, his own music. It's yeah. like he'd be fired. Like this is, these are bad musicians. <laughs> They're bad people. I have to ask, is Tom Hanks' character an asshole? Yes. He is, but he's that. I feel like he's written to be that '80s asshole character where we're supposed to love him. He gets away with it. <laughs> he's, yeah, he gets away with it because it's Tom Hanks and he's lovable. Mm. He is an asshole, and yet he's our protagonist. The '80s is a totally crazy time, though. The '80s did a lot of this sort of stuff. People are getting their hair caught in other people's zippers. Mm-hmm. All kinds of things going on, you know. Um. Okay. Well, that, thanks, Laurie. <laughs> Other than that, you know, you've got Carrie Fisher and, and Jim Belushi, which are household names. Mm. I, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think they're just sort of squandered in this film. Yeah, they're fine. I mean, they'll do better work elsewhere. The The actor who I was kind of happy to see was Tom Noonan, showing up as one of the CIA guys tailing Tom Hanks. Um, he's like one of those really well-known character actors. Um He's been just tons of stuff. He was in an episode of the X-Files that I'll never forget. It was the one, I don't know if uh, X-Files uh, you know, watchers out there will remember this, but it was the one where he was holding someone hostage in a bus and he was like a psychopath. And it was like a terrifying episode. Tom Nonan, it's great. Um, I don't know that he's that funny in this movie. And the scene where he gets all his teeth ripped out is disturbing as hell, but uh, 
great to see him. I need to rewatch the X Files. Actually, I used to love that back in oh, the '90s. It holds up really well. Does it? I think I'm due a rewatch. Yeah, actually, as I'm well. definitely am. Because I, I did it. you uh, watch it when it came out? They they did some more episodes, didn't they? I didn't watch those. They did. Yeah, I I yeah. did a rewatch a handful of years ago, and I did watch the uh, the mm. last two seasons they put out. Yeah. yeah. It had some nice bits to it, but it, it didn't really touch the original. Yeah, that was a great show. Yeah. Um, okay, I think that's basically everyone in the film. Yeah, um, maybe a little bit of a shout out to Garrett Graham, who was a guest star on Star Trek Voyager, an episode called Death Wish. It's really good. But he had a actually really funny moment in this where he's one of the agents that's like killed and Jim Belushi seeing the body. And the moment where they had him hung up on the back of the door... And he turns and does the dead stare at Jim Belushi. I actually thought it was a really good comedic moment. So good for you, Garrett Graham. And I'd also like to shout out to the red pants that Tom Hanks wore in that scene. I don't think I've ever seen a man with <laughs> pants that red. <laughs> he also had red boxers, or not even boxers, red briefs, right? And he and he had that red bike and he had the red um, ba- uh, bag on his bike and, and the hats. I thought, God, actually, there's a lot of red in this film, but I just thought those pants were amazing. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of, and it's very strange that the producer of this movie, his previous movie was Woman in Red. Yeah, this guy loves red. He does, <laughs> but I I never noticed the first time around all the red. But like, there's a lot of red and like striking red. It's not you know held up there in the background. Yeah, and the fact that this movie was based on a movie called The Tall Blonde Man with One Black Shoe. Yeah, they specifically made it red. <laughs> well, you wouldn't notice black, would you? You wouldn't notice a black shoe. Well, I'd have to see the, the original movie to determine that's that. That's true. That's true. Depends. Yeah, that's true. So. I, I feel like we're all just slightly flummoxed by this film. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. It's the type of one that you you sit there and you're like, I don't understand why it doesn't work because you've got a lot of good actors. You've got a fairly simple premise. It gets a little convoluted, but it's fairly simple. So like, why doesn't it deliver and, uh, or, you know, deliver maybe to the level it should? So I think we are a little bit confused. Well, before we get down to the question, does anyone have any final thoughts on the film? Lorraine, you're the guest. You're up first. I can't think of anything, if I'm honest with you. I feel like we've uh, Mm. covered quite a lot of it. I think if you're going to watch it, just take it for what it is and don't expect too much. (laughs) Yeah, I, I can't really argue with that, Cam. Uh, a couple things. The scene at the start where they drop the car that has cocaine in the tires and then all the dudes like jump on top of the car and start <gasps> yeah. snorting the cocaine was like, that, that was, was a, such an 80s moment. It reminded me of Scarface. Because <laughs> they were saying cocaine. cocaine. Well, how, how is it? Cocaine or something? I can't pronounce it. <laughs> cocaine. Yeah, that was insane. Um, also, there's a line Dabney Coleman says where he says, um, this is going to end with a shooting match in the end. That's how all good spy stories end. Scott, have we found that to be the case? <laughs> Always. Always. No, no. That was um, Charles Durning that said that. It wasn't Dabney. Oh, it was a Dab. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Charles Durning. Yeah. Um, no, I, I haven't found that to be the case. There's been some really good stories that have ended uh, people just sort of talking their way out of it. Yeah, North by Northwest didn't end in like a shooting match. No. 39 Steps. Nope. Uh, questionable line. Yeah. Questionable line, Mr. Durning. <laughs> questionable line, questionable script, questionable movie. <laughs> we have many questions. Um, okay, there's one thing I want to bring up, and there's this sort of running joke throughout the film. It starts off in the airport at the beginning with this one character, 
Uh, he he picks up the the trash can, and then he's carried away by the fake pilots, I think. And then he gets sent down to the sewer. Oh, thank you for bringing this up. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and then so basically, for people who haven't seen the film, it's like this sad sack character that's giving the given these sort of dog's body jobs, and you're constantly getting like flashes to him. Like in the sewers, being covered in sewage, and then just like sitting there, wallowing in his filth, being sad. And the only thing I wrote down is the look of him sitting on the floor at the end in the sewage was how I felt towards the end of this film. <laughs> wow, that's dark. <laughs> that's brutal. <laughs> yeah, I, again, it's just one of those jokes that didn't make me laugh. I thought it was just kind of a weird. Again, it's like a, a setup for something that doesn't really deliver. Um, I, I it was just like okay. Sewer agent, got it. Yeah, there wasn't anything there for me with him. No, and, and the only other thing I, w- I mentioned, which I, I sort of mentioned earlier on as well, was I really liked the soundtrack to this film, which I have been listening to on repeat since I watched the film. I've actually enjoyed the soundtrack a lot more than the film itself. Well, props to Thomas Newman. Not one of his Oscar-nominated scores, though, I will say. Okay, it is question time. Does the man with one red shoe from 1985, Tom Hanks, Dabney Coleman... Carrie Fisher, Jim Belushi. Does it make the knock list? Lorraine, go for it. <laughs> Don't come to me first. Um, um, it has a lot of spy s things about it. Um, I'm gonna say yes. <laughs> <laughs> Going out on a limb for this one. <laughs> Well, there's lots of spy things. You've got your dark glasses. You've got your assassins and wiretaps and stuff. So you know, there's lust. What more do you want? <laughs> is this? I, 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 I'm not going to knock anyone for their choices, but there's always room for debate on on here. Yeah, but you know me. I love my comedy spy. You do. You do. But like, would you take this over Austin Powers? No, but we would haven't you put Austin Powers on the knock list. Yes, and spies mm-hmm. like us and miscongeniality. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Cav, we have a yes. So both yeah. our votes are in play now. Cam, what do you think? Don't let me down. <laughs> <laughs> it's a no for me. Um, I, I, I have to ask myself, did I like this more or less than Jumpin' Jack Flash, another movie I didn't think was deserving of the knock list? I think I would give that one the slight edge over this one. So it, it, it really comes down to that. But... Uh, I don't know. It's like the type of painless movie that I, again, I didn't find this torture to sit through the way I did with Men in Black 2. It's just like I knew when it was over that I would completely forget almost all of this movie in about a week and a half. <laughs> and so when, I, when I'm talking about like the greatest spy films of all time, I got to come down on a no for <laughs> The Man with One Red Shoe, despite, you know, being very happy to hang out with Dabney Coleman again. <laughs> okay, so. Come on, Scott, don't let me down. <laughs> all right. Okay, now, Lorraine, you're our guest tonight, and I want to back you up, and, and I really want to do the opposite of anything Cam ever does. <laughs> do it. Uh, do it. But <laughs> if I looked back on this knock list in four years' time, <laughs> and, and, and I actually voted yes for the man with one red shoe, I think the knock list is completely worthless. Oh. <laughs> It's an absolute, positive <laughs> no for me. Oh, There's wow. no way on God's red earth 
that I would let this film on. Scott, do you want to be careful with that knife? You're sticking in just a bit too much there. <laughs> Sorry, Tom Hanks. Um, okay, look. Cam said this, uh, said something re- at the beginning of the recording, and it, it's stuck in my head ever since. This is the perfect film for when you're 10 years old and you're <laughs> off sick from school and you just want, you've got a fever or you're pretending to be sick and you're just sitting on the couch. Um, you know, your mum's made you a sandwich or something and you just want to zone out for an hour and a half. Great. And you'll laugh. You're 10 years old. Everything's merry. You haven't got to pay bills. But as a 33 year old man, I've watched this film twice. I've spent three hours watching this film in total. I want those three hours back. Oh, wow. I'm approaching the end now. You know, I'm not 10 years old anymore. I can see the end. And uh, this has stolen some time from me. Do you know what? Don't call me crazy, but I think I think Scott's saying no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say this much. Um, I spent 90 minutes of my life watching it. I'm okay with that. My life's not that valuable. <laughs> What else was I going to be doing with that time, really? I mean, come on. <laughs> I spent thir- I spent three hours over 30 years watching it. <laughs> but I, I like my comedy spy. I'm not big into the serious stuff. It's too much. I can't follow them, if I'm honest. I struggle with parts of this to follow, so I don't stand a chance with the other ones. Your listeners are like, get that idiot off. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're saying that about us, me and Scott. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am your new host. <laughs> Next week, spies like us. <laughs> Do you want to read us the outro? We, I can, I'll send you the script now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Despite Lorraine's protestations, the man with one red shoe is not making the knock list. And with that revelation, the dossier on this film is thankfully complete. Before we wrap up today, we have a quick message from some friends of the show. Have a listen and we'll see you on the other side. Hey, this is Ken M. Padawan Jay. Coach Duffy. From the Ocho Duro Parlay Hour podcast. Every week, the ODPH is talking sports, movies, TV, comics, and more. It's always a parlay of topics on each episode. You can find the ODPH on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and wherever you find great podcasts, such as the one you're listening to right now. Don't forget to check out OchoDuroParlayHour.com, where you can find the links to all of the ODPH social media accounts, Links to the bands whose music you hear each week on the show, hashtag 607 podcast info, and parlay points are a companion block section of the show. Thanks for listening to the ODPH. Now get back to your regularly scheduled podcast. So check out ODPH, guys. They're on all major podcast apps. We love them, and we think you will too. For sure. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us this week. You were, I think, the first person to have us on as a guest when we started this podcast. So How we was had I? To- oh. I think, I think you were. And so, you know, we had to find a good film for you to come on for. And I'm glad you're finally a member of the Spy Hards team. Thank you for having me. Um, and I mean, we spoke about it at the beginning of the show, but if people want to hear some more about Once Upon a Nightmare, uh, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Twitter as A Nightmare Pod and I'm on Instagram as Once Upon a Nightmare Podcast and Facebook as Once Upon a Nightmare fantastic make sure you follow and subscribe because we do and you can go back and hear scott sounding really scared about a film which is always fun (laughs) right cam speaking of scared what are we doing next week well scott we're closing off the men in black series the quadrilogy if you will with 2019's men in black international yeah i i have never seen this film and i'm almost scared to watch it because of what i've heard about it but I'm glad that we are finishing off our black suit quadrilogy. It's the longest one yet. 
<laughs> God. <sighs> so, of course, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Men in Black International and join us next week. And don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, good luck on the run from Dabney Coleman.